Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Liverpool Scientific. I'm sure many of you have seen, but if not, I thought I'd mention before we start the show that the Liverpool Scientific is now an award-winning podcast, winning the 2021 Institute of Physics Rutherford Plasma Physics Communication Prize for the episode on laser accelerator science with Laura Corner. Thank you so much for your continued support for the podcast and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. What factors in our lives contribute to making us more or less resilient? That's the question that Professor Kate Bennett is trying to answer by studying the effects of issues like widowhood and bereavement on the mental health of older people. As well as her work on the psychology of later life, she's also involved in several studies looking into the psychological and social impact of COVID-19 on household members. In this episode, we discuss what ecological resilience is, the results of the COVID-19 study so far, and why she decided to pursue a career in psychology. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you do, make sure to share and subscribe to The Liverpool Scientific wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Today I'm joined by Kate Bennett, Professor of Psychology here at the University of Liverpool. Kate, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. So a lot of your work, Kate, is focused on the psychology of later life. So what aspects of the psychology of old people do you look at in particular and what sort of questions are you trying to answer with this work? So um, I've been looking at older people, the psychology of, of older people for, uh, well, more than 30, 30 years. Um, during that time, my, a lot of my work has focused on uh, widowhood and bereavement, and not just in older people, but primarily in older, in older people. And then for the last 10 years or so, I've had a particular interest in uh, resilience, from an ecological framework, which we might say something about later. Um, and, and that's in relationship to transitions, which might be about resilience in bereavement and widowhood. It might be resilience in uh, caregiving, particularly in dementia caregiving. And then uh, currently I have a lot of um, interest in the ways in which um, COVID is influencing the lives of older people, um, but also adults in uh, adults in general. Okay, and I guess in the UK, as with many countries around the world, we do have an aging population. So, you know, these problems are, or, or not problems, but this is very relevant to, to our society today. So you touched on ecological situations. Could you talk about that in, in a little bit more detail? So a lot of the work in resilience, or at least the way in which the public and people like the government think about re resilience is that it's something which it resides in the individual for which the individual is responsible. You could think of it in a way uh, that is perhaps neoliberal in a kind of polit political sense. That is, it can be interpreted as if you are not resilient, then you are at fault. An ecological approach is very different. So I would argue that there may be individual resources uh, that contribute to resilience. So that might be your, your psychological 
ways of thinking about it. It might be things like life philosophy. It might be your resources around your health or health behaviour. That isn't sufficient to contribute to resilience. You know, you have to, you live in a society, you live as uh, an individual in a community with family and friends, and that's important. So those things might be your social support from family and friends. It could be your participation in social activities, you know, joining of clubs or um, volunteering. It could be things like neighbourhood cohesion. So if you're living in a in a neighbourhood which is supportive, then that might facilitate resilience. Whereas if you're living in a in a in a neighbourhood that is, is is not cohesive or not supportive, then that would hinder resilience. Um, and then there are societal factors. So, for example, you know, have you got access to health and welfare services? Are there policies which support you or, or hinder you? What kind of cultural activities are provided for you? In some societies, you know, what kind of religious framework is there? And I would argue that all of those, it's kind of like three levels, if you like, interact with, with each other, but not in a hierarchical fashion, but in a, in a flat structure, that is Individual factors might influence societal or community factors. Community factors might influence individual and society factors. And societal factors might influence uh, individual and community factors. Um, and that's very and that's very important that you think of it that way. That it isn't only residing in the individual. Yeah. So I guess. I've always thought of it as resilience as you know you face challenges in your life and it's like you said at the start it's up to you to build that resilience um but you know what you're what you're saying and I think this is very true is that it's actually almost like a web of resilience and there's all these different factors that input to make you more capable at dealing with the challenges that we face in day-to-day -day life and something interesting um given that the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment with COVID is that a lot of those factors have been taken away and we haven't been able to socially interact in, in the normal way. Um, and now you are actually looking into some studies at the moment to look at the psychological effects of COVID-19. Um, so, so can you tell us a bit more about this work and maybe how this links to these, these points that you've just made on resilience? So uh, I'm part of the C19 Psychological Research Consortium uh, with colleagues in uh, Sheffield, Ulster, uh, Roehampton and UCL. And we're um, conducting a longitudinal uh, study of the psychological, in a very broad sense, um, factors influencing, that are, that are influenced by COVID-19. And I've also been working with colleagues who have a parallel survey in, in Italy. And the data from the Italian survey, which we've, we've analysed looking at resilience, shows that there are factors which uh, support resilience and there are factors which uh, hinder resilience. So some of the factors that hinder resilience might be the number of children in the household, some personality factors such as uh, neuroticism, high levels of intolerance of uncertainty, so people who, who, who find uh, uncertainty difficult to handle. But there are also some interesting factors that support 
resilience and they would be things like having had some exposure already to COVID in the sense of either knowing somebody who's had COVID or having had it yourself, thinking that you've had it, being tested for it, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. They actually support resilience, suggesting that I suppose it's an idea that the fear of something is something is sometimes worse than the thing the thing itself um and so that's that that works very that's works very interesting and we're going to look at that longitudinally in the british in the british data where we have uh, some more variables which feed fit better with the ecological model of uh, resilience so better measures of social support for example Okay, and just quickly, because I'm not 100% sure what this means, but when you talk about looking at things longitudinally, could you explain what, what that means in terms of the data? Yeah, so what we, in, in our study, what we have is we, we have multiple waves in the British data. So we started collecting data uh, in March, right at the beginning of the pan pandemic last year. And then we have had three other waves of data so far so we collected uh, towards the uh, in the summer and then again in September I can't remember exactly mm -hmm. um, and then just before Christmas and we're due to have a fifth wave that means that you're able to look at the same individuals over time and see what has changed um, uh, what is stable it also allows you to look at add-in variables that are uh, become more relevant in, in something like COVID where things are changing all the time and, and new research questions emerge. So we have data from somewhere around 1,500 to 2,000 people who we've got multiple measures over time so we can see what's happening to those individuals. One of the things that I would say that's really interesting, really important, for which I'm a kind of a small part, that the team has looked at this idea that is in the media about a tsunami of mental health problems. And actually what we find is that there are people whose mental health wasn't good before the pandemic, whose mental health is remains poor. Some people whose mental health was poor before the pandemic who improves, some people whose uh, mental health was good before the pandemic and remains good. And uh, another group whose mental health has got worse. And I think it's important to understand that there isn't one pattern of, of response. And that it's that actually, you know, for some people, the pandemic's been, been fine in terms of the mental health. And for some people, it's got better. And it's a relatively small number of people who have whose mental health has got worse as a consequence of the pandemic and i think that's really important because we need to be able to target resources and we need to target the resources of those people who need them for example those people whose mental health has remained poor and those people who have whose mental health has got worse but make sure that we're not sort of targeting those people who actually are doing okay yeah, and I, I think that's really interesting because like you said, there's a lot of people who've had 
an incredibly challenging you know year it's coming up to a year now of of covid um but there are some people who haven't had to commute to work every day who've got to spend more time with their family and i think it's it's easy for the media to dwell on the negatives um of people who are maybe already suffering like you said continuing to suffer during covid but there are a lot of people who have had that chance to spend time with family that they maybe might not have had in in normal time um so yeah that's in, that's incredibly important um, i mean think, um, sorry to interrupt one of the things i would say is that when i look at the italian data and you have to remember so the uh, two of the regions that were that were in this in this italian data were Lombardy and Veneto and they were the two areas that were really really badly hit Lombardy in particular in the, mm -hmm. in the in the first wave but what we find is that 70% of our participants didn't have levels of depression or anxiety that were above clinical levels so that means that what you're talking about is you're talking about 70% of, of the population doing doing okay and that's that's really that's really that's really important i think also because there is a tendency for people to think i should be feeling bad and if i'm not feeling bad there's something wrong with me whereas what we should be saying is you know people human beings are resilient they they deal with challenges that is one of the things that you know humans are, are really good at doing and we should really you know understand i think what's important is that to understand if we understand the factors that support people to do well then we can develop policies and interventions to using that information to use with those people who who do less well yeah definitely and i guess as as well these results at the moment are very short term effects that you're seeing, you know, you've started in March and you're kind of up to now you've been looking at this data. What are the long term psychological effects do you think that we'll see as a result of the pandemic? Well, that's a good question. I think I think, as, as I said before, I think most for most people. So certainly for certainly for adults, I think that, um, you know, we will have we will have learned a lot we'll have learned you know how to use technology i think there are some things that you know that we will the kind of our behaviors will change i suspect that we will return to something pretty much like it was before except perhaps you know more mask wearing as a as a matter of course as happens in you know um in other parts of the in other parts of the world you know i'd like to think that we'll have more working from home or more you know a healthier approach to the environment but i don't know that there will be really long-term effects except for uh, you know young people you know there's issues around employment which are which are problematic particularly for young people and it will be interesting to see what happens in terms of um long-term effects for, for, for children and uh, young adults. And that's not, you know, that's not my, that's not my area. Um, so I, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't speculate, but I, th I think that, you know, it's like other, other big challenges that people have had. Uh, for example, you know, a lot of my participants, my widowhood studies in the, in the early days had, had experienced as, as young men and women, 
the Second World War. And it influenced the way that they met challenges later in life as a kind of what you might call a stealing effect. Mm -hmm. It helped them prepare. So I suspect there'll be some of that. But I but I'm not sure what other really long term effects there'll be. I think I think we don't know. Okay, so now let's take a look back over your career to understand what attracted you to psychology. Um, You first studied for an undergraduate degree in psychology at the University of Leicester. So what made you decide to study psychology in in particular? So when I was 15, I was looking at, I've always been interested in people. So I was originally, when I was about 15, thought about sociology, but then I thought, well, I don't know what I would do with being a degree in sociology so I thought psychology was really interesting and I thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist and that's one of the reasons that I chose Leicester because it had a very strong clinical psychology course at the time but actually when I graduated from Leicester I became what was then known as a psychology technician but it's now known as a psychology assistant working with people with learning uh, disabilities in a large, very large institution, which was in the process of closing down. And um, I really didn't like working. I like working with the clients, but I didn't like working uh, for the NHS. And I didn't like uh, where I worked. And I missed studying. I'd done an undergraduate project looking at women's attitudes towards weight anxiety. The results hadn't been significant, but I felt that there was something missing. So I went I went back to do a PhD at the University of Nottingham, um, looking at weight anxiety in eating disorders, um, part-time and self-funded. So I also took on other research jobs. Wow, that must have been a very, very intense few years. Um... You know, you've said it a few times, you've, you, you're you very, very interested in ageing. What is it particularly that do you think got you interested in the first place? So when I was growing up, there were two groups of people who were really, really influential. My my grandmother, who died when I was uh, very small, but I was, I was close to, was of a generation of women born um at the turn of the at the turn of the 20th century who went to university and many of whom not my grandma but many of whom didn't marry so they these these were very strong independent single women um who had a very big influence on my on my life and then there was another group of people who i met through uh i suppose i met through my father's work which was sort of very political so he was a politician and they were so I met I spent a lot of time with older people um because I that was just where I spent my time and I re- was really interested in 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 them and what they had to say uh they liked me um <laughs> and so so it was those kinds of things I suppose the other thing to say about the widowhood work which is why I got started in widowhood is when I worked on the Nottingham Longitudinal Study, I um, was able to explore a piece of work myself. I was interested in women's issues. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues that hadn't been explored in that was widowhood, which was primarily 
a kind of woman's issue. Um, and then I started that work in January 91. And then in March 91, my granny was widowed. My work mirrored her experiences. And, and so that was very, that was very important that, you know, our journeys, her and my journey was in parallel, I think. What's curious, actually, is that I've ended up working a lot um, on masculinity in, and I don't think when I started off that that's where I would have spent a lot of time. Yeah. So, so what kind of work on masculinity and, and what sort of issues do you <coughs> explore? So what I'm interested in is, is, is masculinity in, in relationship to ageing in particular. I'm interested in the ways in which men, older men, talk about their, what it's like to be a man and what the kinds of things they do in order to demonstrate that they're a man. So, in, you know, in, in later life, it's things like, so, you know, a lot of the roles that, older, that men traditionally have experienced, you know, that of being... A, you know, a pr provider, a protector, someone who's sort of demonstrating their, oh, I don't like the word, but virility, you know, those kinds mm -hmm. of things, you know, those, as you get older, those things are all challenged, you know, you, you may no longer be working, you know, if you're widowed, you've lost your spouse, so in a sense, there's a kind of, you know, you've not managed to maintain that protection, you're not, uh, you, you may well not be you know going out and 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 dating oh and the other thing is that you're expected you know as, as men well in our culture so it's all about our culture mm -hmm. men are not expected to show their emotions well if you if you lose your if you lose your wife you're going to be upset and society expects you to be upset so how do men manage the expectations of society about how it is to be a, a, a grieving person and how do you manage to maintain your identity as a man? And I'm really, in, really interested in, 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 in how that happens. And so I've written quite a lot about that, uh, some of which with a very influential American uh, scholar called Ed Thompson, who was writing about ageing and masculinity right back in the 1980s when I was an undergraduate and so it's a you know real privilege to be working with you know people like that. That yeah that must have been absolutely incredible. So now after your time doing your PhD from here you went on to become a lecturer at De Montfort University before joining the University of Liverpool in 1999 so why why did you decide to stay in academia after your PhD? That's a good question. I, th I think I fell into academia. I th think I fell into academia, and then it's the obvious thing to do. I suppose my so at the point that I was I was finishing my PhD and applying for jobs, it was a very interesting point in, in British in British education because in 1992 the divide between uh, the old universities, the traditional universities, and the polytechnics was removed. So we have the pre-92 universities and the post-92 universities and De Montfort became a university in 1992 and I joined in 1993. So that was a very interesting time to be in in education. The other thing that was interesting from my perspective was that prior to that time health psychology was really wasn't really a discipline. 
So when I'd worked as a research assistant in the clinical psychology department a few years previously, things that we would now know as health psychology were under the remit of the clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. So by 93, there were a lot of openings for people who were health psychologists. So I rebranded myself as me. I mean, I needed to have, I needed to, I'd actually been out of work uh, for a little while in 1993. So I needed a job. The only thing that I was kind of qualified for was a, was kind of lecturing. Um, mm-hmm. I need, I wanted something that was permanent. That was the other, the other thing I couldn't, I'd reached a point in my life where I could not afford to be on short term contracts any longer so I it was sort of by necessity and I so I rebranded myself as a health psychologist so I spent my career teaching wise teaching health psychology research wise doing work in in aging so that they're kind of parallel I mean qualified to work as a health psychologist registered with the HCPC but I don't so so really it was kind of you know I needed a job and that's what I was qualified for. I mean, and it's it, that sounds so I had no I had no kind of career plan because it all went out of the window when I decided I didn't want to be a clinical psychologist. <laughs> I've not had a, I've not really had a career plan in that very formal sense. I think it's interesting talking to people on, on this podcast because so many people, when you look at people's CVs, it all seems very natural, the progression. Um, and then when you actually talk to people, you realise that often it is by chance or they weren't really sure what they wanted to do and an opportunity just came up. Um, and I guess it you know links back to your work on resilience. I think that period between being a PhD or, or a postdoc and getting a permanent position, I think can be a very challenging period for a lot of academics. So you, you got your job at De Montfort and then um, during your time, well, after your time here, you then went on to join the University of Liverpool. What were you doing at De Montfort? And then, and then I guess, why did you decide to move to Liverpool? So at De Montfort, I did lots of teaching. I taught uh, both in psychology and uh, health, uh, health studies and speech and language therapy. So it was very kind of health based. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of teaching, but I had a very supportive head of department who provided me with resources, which allowed me to carry on doing research. But I suppose my research during that time was apart from having that bit of support, a lot of it was actually in my spare time, really, because mm-hmm. there wasn't a space in the job. Um, But I knew that there were questions from the work that I'd done in Nottingham on widows that needed answering in a a qualitative way. So I taught myself qualitative methods, was able to get some resources to, to undertake some interviews. And on the back of that, there was an ESRC program called the Growing Older program, which I applied for with a colleague from Reading, Philip Smith to do a more extensive piece of work and I got that funding and it was quite a prestigious program and at that point my partner got a job at Liverpool because Liverpool psychology was expanding and so I talked to the head of department Steve Cooper at Liverpool and said I could bring my money with me and be my own postdoc and he said yeah that would be a good idea and we will be expanding health psychology in 12 months time so there would be an opportunity for you to get a lecturing position at that point 
But it turned out that somebody who was appointed at the same time as my partner well, withdrew from the a position. And so I then applied. And so I got a job in 99 at the same time, where there was a big expansion in student numbers and in, in staff. So there were five of us who joined as staff. And then I helped develop the psychology and health sciences degree programme. So that was why I moved. I suppose it was again, I mean, it was a, it was it was a good move for me moving from a new university to a, um, an older university where research was imp was important. And also it was a good fit because the ageing, Liverpool has had a very long tradition of ageing research uh, going back to the 1960s, uh, but also uh, Steve Cooper was interested in um, eating behaviour, so there was a fit in sort of two two strands really, which meant that that um, I was a good fit and Liverpool was a good fit for me. Yeah, and and you've been at Liverpool ever since, um, becoming head of the School of Psychology in twenty sixteen, um, as well as being appointed visiting chair in gerontology at St Thomas University in Canada. Um, so I think you've had an incredible incredible career, particularly at Liverpool, um, nearly twenty two years, which is fantastic. No, frightening. <laughs> Um, um, this really brings us to today. So you continue to pursue fantastic research as a professor of psychology here in Liverpool. So I guess to finish off, what are the next steps for your widowhood research, but also for the, the COVID-19 study as well? So I guess in terms of, I mean, I have, I have so much data in terms of interviews conducted over the, over the, over the years for, for working in widowhood that, um, I could keep on writing until I retire. Um, I have some projects which are kind of looking at resilience and loneliness. I'm currently working on uh, work with uh, my Canadian colleague, uh, Deborah Vannon Hunard on widowed men's friendships. And we have a plan to look at uh, widowed men and their kind of domestic cooking of habits. Um, the resilience work is, they're in all sorts of in all sorts of angles so in relationship to dementia uh, dementia care uh, with warren Dinellen at the university of liverpool i've also got work looking bereavement with another team in liverpool stephen mason and then the, the the sort of the covid work i think for me that was a really really lucky that sounds terrible um, <laughs> because it came at a time when i was no longer going to be head of school. I've been out of research in any big sort of way for four years. And so really I got back into doing research very quickly in a way that um, other people who've been heads uh, don't always have that kind of opportunity. So, and I think that the work with, with the team, with the consortium team is fantastic because we're doing work on all sorts of different different things so you know the resilience the mental health I'm working with some people looking at uh, a concept called death anxiety I'm working with other people on young on young people so there's just so much happening there's uh, there's Liverpool related Covid projects as well with with the city which you know so I think that I have so much more to uh, to do and I'm open. I think one of the things that I would say is that it is really helpful to be open to collaborations and to opportunities.
um, and to kind of, you know, have the academic freedom to do the things that you want to be able to, to do. I think that's really, really important. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot to be be doing in the next few years, which is incredibly exciting. And it's been fantastic to hear about your career today. So Professor Kate Bennett, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your Liverpool Scientific. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Liverpool Scientific. Follow at Live Scientific on Instagram and Twitter to find out who I'm going to be talking to next and when the next episode is going to be released.